Our text this morning is Luke eleven twenty nine through thirty six. Luke eleven twenty nine through thirty six. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment and with the men of this generation and and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Father, as we come to your word now, the words of Christ. Lord, I pray that they would bring about faith that is a gift from you. Uh, Father, I ask that you would give us spiritual sight, that we would see clearly and trust wholly. Lord, I ask that you would work individually. Everyone here comes with different burdens, different circumstances. But Lord, I ask that your word would speak in every one of them, that you would lift them to Christ, to trust him, cling to him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' generation had extreme sensory issues, problems. They had problems with their sight. They had problems with their taste buds, with their smelling, their hearing, their feeling. They had hearts that were hard. All metaphors pointing to the hardness, the evil nature of Jesus' generation. The fact that they struggled with Spiritual sight was evidenced by two main things. Self-righteousness, first off. If they would see the light from God through Christ, self-righteousness could not reign. And yet the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Sadducees, 
the Jews of Jesus' day thought they were the best there has been up to that point. Self-righteousness is one of the signs that you're not seeing clearly. The second is self-pity. Self-pity which despairs and doesn't see the salvation that is offered in Christ. It's a sign that we're being blinded, that we're not thinking clearly, that our minds are darkened. Both Judas, which represents one with self-pity when he recognized his sin, went and hung himself, and the Pharisees that couldn't even see their sin because they just saw all their self-righteousness represent a generation that lacked sight. And I'm here this morning to tell you that Christians today struggle with both self-righteousness and self-pity. In this room, there's both non-believers who have not yet seen with eyes of faith that they could be saved. They, they haven't seen their sin. They haven't seen the glory of Christ. And there's believers here in fact, every believer here struggles with these two things. Self-righteousness and self-pity, which tells us that our eyes are not fully good and fully seen light. And so here is my plea. At the very beginning, the Christian life is not merely knowing true things. Maybe the number one thing I hear as a pastor in trying to speak light and hope and truth into someone's life is, I know. I already know this. To which I say, I don't care because the Christian life is a fight of faith. Here's what Paul said. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, now catch this, here's how Paul lives. I live by faith, in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul got to the end of his life and called his life, described it as a fight of faith. A, a race, like a marathon that takes endurance. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Now, why isn't it that you just learn true things and then you get on with it? Because he says, I've been crucified with Christ. Sam Ellison wakes up every morning 
Not wanting to be crucified with Christ, but wanting to be king of my own life. Come up with my own rules, my own wisdom, my own way. But I need to wake up and remember who I am. I'm a sinner that's been purchased by Christ. God loved me. He gave Himself for me. I need to know that and remember who I am because the whole rest of the day is going to be a fight of faith. If you don't know the fight of faith, if you're not struggling to believe, you're not a Christian. And if you say, oh, I already know that, and I'm not in a fight of faith, I'm saying you don't understand the Christian life. Are you better than the Apostle Paul who had to fight every day to believe the things he already knew? In fact, in Galatians 2, where I quoted from Paul's words to you, he's reminding that church, have you, are you leaving the one whom I set forth before you? I put him on display and you were saved by the power of the Spirit. Now are you going to go on in the flesh? Are you going to fight a different way other than by faith? This sermon, at first glance, this text, might not seem very life applicable. When I first looked at it, I thought, what's the so what going to be? I know what the text says. I know what it means, but so what for my life? What is it that we need to see here? We've just seen that Jesus has been performing signs and miracles and cast out a demon. And the crowds looked at it and the religious leaders said, he does that by the power of Beelzebul, the power of Satan. That's how he does it. And Jesus showed them how foolish that thinking was. And then he said, here's the thing, if you're not with me, you're against me. Which pointed out that all these self-righteous people were not with Christ. They thought they were so good, but they were not with him. They were such a proud generation because of their outward morality, their religi religiosity. In, in fact, they looked back at their fathers and they condemned them. They said, our fathers killed the prophets. They didn't like what the prophets had to say. And so they killed the prophets. So we're the good generation. We're going to decorate the tombs of the prophets. We're the good ones. This generation looked in to their hearts and they saw light in comparison to the generations that had gone before them. They were steeped in self-righteousness. And Jesus said, watch out for when an evil spirit leaves a person and goes away and comes back and finds it empty, he's going to bring back seven demons more wicked than himself 
and the last state will be worse than the first. If the demon comes back and finds the house swept morally clean, but without God in there, without Christ in there, it's going to be seven times more evil. This is him saying, you ought not be so sure of your self-righteousness that you think you have. And then he said in, in Luke eleven twenty seven, as he was saying these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice, said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nurse. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus says, here's the blessed ones. Those that are listening to me and just hang on to it. They love it. There's others in the crowd that can't. They listen to every word I say critically. They look at all my miracles and they say, it's not enough. But he says, I'll tell you who's blessed. Those who hear my words and cannot leave my words. So what I'm asking, pleading with you today is to see the light. And when I say see the light, what I mean is fight the fight of faith to cling to God's word seen most clearly in Jesus Christ. There's a difference between, you know, there might be some light over there and seeing it, clinging to it, grabbing on to it, fighting the fight of faith. That generation that Jesus lived in would rightly have received the question that every referee or umpire has heard probably more than any other question. What does a referee probably hear most often from the crowd? What are people yelling? Did you not see that? Are you kidding me? Are you blind? Right? It's obvious. Are you blind? Were you not looking at the same thing? And this generation has the most obvious signs. The best truth. And Jesus in this text is pointing out, are you kidding me? How's your sight? You're really going to blame the light, the lack of light? That's what you want to point to? So point one in your notes is this. Discern the light of Christ. See it. You got to fight to see it. The world doesn't want you to see it. The devil doesn't want you to see it. Your selfishness when you wake up in the morning does not want you to see it. Discern the light of Christ. Look at verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It's kind of odd, isn't it? You think he'd be happy. The, as the crowd is growing, you think he would say, oh yeah, they like what they see. They're just gathering around. But he says, no, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, 
But no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man be to this generation. The people hadn't seen enough. They wanted to see more. They wanted more proof. They assumed that the problem with their unbelief was in Jesus Christ. Not being powerful enough. Not being revealing enough. And Jesus said, that's not how we play the game. You're not getting a sign. Well, you'll get one sign. You're going to get a sign. The truth is he's already laid out so many signs. But he says, just as Jonah was assigned to the people of Nineveh, the Son of Man will be assigned to them. Just as Jonah was, here's how Matthew says it. Helps us understand a little better. Matthew 12, 39. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Noah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says there's a sign coming. He knows he's going to die. He knows that three days later, he's going to be raised. And he also knows that for this evil generation, the great majority of Israel, that sign is not going to be enough even for them. It's a sobering thing to think about that a person's heart can be so hard. A person's eyes can be so blind. A person's ears could be so deaf that no matter how much light is given, their hardness of heart wins the day. It's a sobering thing that Christ wants us to consider. He wanted this generation to consider it. Look at what he says in verse 31. The queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba that Scott read about, will rise up at judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. At judgment, when every body that's ever died, every person that's ever died, when their spirit meets their resurrected body at judgment day, which will be for those in heaven and those in hell, every body will be raised for the final judgment. And on that day, the queen of Sheba is going to stand as a witness against this generation. You want to know why? Because the queen of Sheba wasn't invited to hear Solomon's wisdom. And yet when she heard of it, she made a three-day journey at great cost to not only hear it, but to lean into it and to thank God for it and to receive it. 
at Solomon's wisdom, without an invitation, she came and she received and she worshipped the God of Israel, a pagan Gentile queen did this, will stand up against this generation and be a testimony against them. And he says something greater than Solomon's here. Solomon had more wisdom than any man there ever was until Christ came. In fact, we're told that all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are hidden in Jesus Christ, Colossians 2, 3. And this generation had Christ. They had His teaching. They had His wisdom. And they wanted more. It wasn't enough. They wanted to add to it. He's the fullness of deity in bodily form. And yet, a pagan queen with far less wisdom and far less witness. Trusted. And then in verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now the story of Jonah, many of you are familiar with. God tells, sends Jonah as a prophet to Nineveh. To this Gentile city that Jonah hated. And God said, I want you to go warn them that if they don't repent, judgment's going to come. And he said, that's the last thing I'm going to do. I'm going to get on a ship and I'm going to go the opposite way. And God threw a storm on that boat and everyone on board realized that this was supernatural and this was not normal. And they were trying to figure out why this boat was cursed. And they cast lots and they come to figure out that it was Jonah was the problem. Jonah knew he was the problem. He said, unless you throw me in, you're all going to perish. And you know what happens. They throw him in. The storm stops. God appoints a large fish. I love that. A, A large sea creature to swallow him up for three days, and then spits him out, gives him new life. I want to read to you how big a creep Jonah was. Jonah 3.3. So after God spares his life, he cries for mercy in the belly of the fish. I know that you'll save me. I know that you'll show me the light of day. God shows him mercy And then here's where we read in Jonah 3.3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. His sermon is judgment. And the people of Nineveh believed God. (laughs) What? Jonah doesn't like these people. He doesn't have the right heart. And he preaches 40 days. 
and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And they believed him. And they trusted him. They heard light coming from a prophet that wasn't even a good prophet. And they believed Jonah. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The word of the the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. A king humbled by Jonah's preaching. And he issued a proclamation that be published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast nor her, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said would, he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live and the Lord said, do you do well in your anger, Jonah? <laughs> it's amazing. The, the same words are used when, when Jonah's begging for mercy and salvation in the belly of the fish is the very same thing God gave Nineveh. And yet Jonah wanted to die rather than see those Gentiles forgiven. That prophet, the message of judgment, and they believed. And the people of Nineveh will stand up against the generation of Jesus' day and condemn them. For someone far greater than Jonah was in their midst. This is the sad thing about sin. Sin blinds our eyes. The problem is not that we don't have enough evidence. Here's what Paul says in Romans 1.18 about the problem with the human condition. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So people are unrighteous. God sends them truth and they take the truth and they suppress it. They push it down. And then he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. It's plain to them. 
Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. I remember sitting there in a doctor's office with an OB doctor that sees the miracle of human life. He kind of says, isn't it crazy? Where these people and this, you know, another human being grows inside and it's just, it's just weird. It's like, no, that's God screaming out that he's there, that this is impossible apart from him. And the things that have been made, just look at a leaf. Look at how water gets to every part of it through every vein. Watch a deer jump over a fence. Where did that power just appear from? Right? Does energy come from nowhere? Can we create more energy than we already have? Who gives the power for the deer to leap? It's plain, and yet the world does not believe. Not because it's not clear, but because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness because their deeds are evil. Truth exposes. He goes on to say, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. They begin to look into their hearts and their own wisdom, and they said, look how bright it is. We're so smart. We're so wise. We know the truth. That generation was a wicked generation. In fact, that generation saw the resurrection of Christ. And here's what John 12, 9 says about Lazarus' resurrection. You remember Lazarus? Jesus raises him from the dead after being dead four days. When a large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. <laughs> what? That's the guy that brought a guy from the dead four days earlier. Let's kill him. How much more witness can you give? Jesus is ra raises from the dead. And what do the religious leaders do? They begin to pay the guards to say, say the disciples came and stole his body. It's an evil generation. And then he says this, verse 33 no one after lighting a lamp puts it in the cellar or under a basket, but on the stand so that those who enter may see the light. Here's what he's saying. Their accusation is, is we don't have enough signs. And he says, no, 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 no. <laughs> How could 
that be true. Jesus is the light of the world, John 8, 12. I am the light of the world, the light to the peoples, Isaiah 51, 4. Jesus did not come and hide the light. You take a lamp and you put it on a stand. That's what you do with light. And Jesus is saying, that's not going to be your accusation. That light was in public. It was on display. It was the brightest light there ever was. Both signs and wisdom teaching there's ever been. And then he says, your problem is not a lack of light. The problem is with your eye. That's the problem. It brings you to point two in the notes. Do you have a sight problem? And I'm here to tell you, you all have a sight problem. Some of you have never seen and you're not saved and you don't yet know Christ. And many of you are saved and yet because you're in a faith battle, you've yet to see totally clearly. Now we see through a glass dimly. Then we'll see him face to face. But we fight the fight of faith to see better, to see more. Look at what he says. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. Most of you know my little nephew, Henry. He's blind. And his blindness hinders many things he can do. Many things. His eyes are bad. He can't just go take off like you and I. It's amazing what the other senses can do in Henry, the amount of joy he can bring. But just think if when your eyes go bad, how your whole body is affected by that. Jesus is making that point. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Sin and self-righteousness clouded and blinded that generation from seeing Christ. They couldn't see him. They had bad eyes. It was incredible blindness. They were so blind that they thought they saw things crystal clear. When they looked in, they thought they saw light. They were asking for light in the midst of blinding light, which revealed their blindness. Turn the lights on. The lights are on. No, they're not. Well, then you're blind. They're on. The eye is struggling. How do our eyes see good? We listen to Jesus' words. We look at his life. And when we cling to him by faith, light fills our lives. When we begin to doubt Jesus' words, when we begin 
to doubt the sin it exposes in our life, darkness begins to affect our life. That's why the biggest battle of your life has to do with faith. It's going to affect your whole life, day to day to day to day. It's a faith battle. There's no such thing as already knowing, and now I see. It's just I'm just good to go. Now I coast. It's not how it works. That's why he says, therefore, verse 35, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. He's loving this generation. He's telling them the truth. He says, you're evil. He says, be careful that when you look inside and you think you see light, be careful that the light you think you see isn't actually darkness. The light of Christ exposed their sin. They lived their whole life on the, their identity of self-righteousness. And they hated Jesus' guts because he's the shining light that exposed their ugly hearts behind all that outward morality. It shined in so ugly, but because they were so steeped and clouded by their self-righteousness and blindness, they looked in and said, I'm good. He's from Satan. Isn't that amazing? How our sin can make us so blind. Jesus reveals, look at verse 36. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part darkness, it'll be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. The gospel shines two main beams. One beam exposes sin. The Bible does not make you feel good about yourself in and of your flesh. In fact, it condemns you. It calls you children of wrath. It says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. There's no goodness in and of ourselves. That beam shines in. The Pharisees hated that beam, didn't look at that beam. They wanted to get rid of that beam. It's exposing sin in my life. But what does the second beam do? This, the first beam leaves you dead and hopeless. Or the first beam, the second beam points to Christ. The Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. It brings hope. If you don't see the first beam, you'll be self-righteous. If you don't see the second beam, you'll have self-pity you'll feel sorry for yourself. You forget what God has done on your behalf to save you from your sins. Your eyes are good when you're looking in to the Word of God and both beams are shining bright. The one beam makes you hate your sin. You hate it, but it doesn't lead to despair. Because there's another beam shining brighter that overtakes that beam. Christ, who has paid in full for your sins and provided righteousness for you. 
And it's my prayer that you're discerning as to know how the light's shining into your life. Because if we're honest, our lives can get pretty dark as we don't fight the fight of faith with God's people. Reminding us that we need to see clear truth from Christ, the gospel. Here's what two beams looks like. 1 John 1.5. See if you can see them. This is the message we heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say, I'm with the light, but I'm walking in darkness, we're lying. Now someone might say, well then I've never walked in the light because I feel like I'm always struggling with darkness. Well, read on. If we say we have no sin, our, our verse 7, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Look at that. So if you're actually not walking in darkness, you're recognizing sin and you're seeing that Christ's blood forgives you for sin. You can see both beams there. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. The light is not in us if we say, I don't have sin. I'm good. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the person seeing Christ. If we have not sinned, if we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us, my little children. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Gentiles like the people of Nineveh and Gentile queens like the queen of Sheba. If you're walking in the light, it's not that you're living a perfect life, it's that you're recognizing sin in your life. But you're not despairing ultimately because you're not just looking at sin, you're looking to Christ and what God has done for you. Battle for spiritual sight, asking for God's help. I have Three texts that I'm just basically going to read to you and then we'll close. Second Corinthians 4, Paul says, we're not going to mess with God's word. We're not going to mess with the light. Here's why. He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He says, we're just going to preach it. We know it's offensive to a sinful man, but we're going to preach it. 
And he says, and even if our gospel is veiled or hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So you already have unbelievers. You can't just blame Satan. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. Satan comes, makes them more blind so that they don't see the glory of Christ. For what we proclaim, Paul says, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. He says we put a spotlight on Christ with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness at the, at the beginning of creation, God spoke and there was light. That God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's a miracle. If you're trusting Christ, it's a miracle. If you're trusting Christ as a struggling with faith Christian, it's a miracle. Here's how Paul prayed in Ephesians 1.16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you are called. Now I'm telling you, this is how we fight with each other. The fight of faith. We have to get alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have to pray with Paul that the eyes of our hearts are enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. I want to end with a warning. There's a truth we find in the scripture that the more light you have, the more you're accountable for. Here's how Jesus says it. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Just being in this service today, you've heard the light of the gospel, the hope that sinners can be saved through Jesus Christ, who willingly went to a cross. He's the only man that never sinned. He lived a perfect life so that he can be the perfect sacrifice we needed a perfect man to take our place because God is a holy God. Jesus 
perfectly kept the law. He never sinned. His value is infinite. And so when he went to the cross and God poured out his wrath on Jesus for yours and my sin, God can wipe away. When Jesus says it is finished, those sins are paid for. It's the good news of the gospel. And my prayer is, is that you take Jesus' warning. Be careful how you see. That's his way of saying, fight, fight the fight of faith. Don't give up looking at the hope in Christ. And for those who cling to Christ to the end, not with a perfect faith, but with a fighting faith, they will be saved. All the promises will be true for them. Father, I pray that we would not take for granted the light you've given us, that we would not treat it as old news, sitting this side of the resurrection, that we would not, that we would not be captivated by the things of this world and make the gospel look boring to us. Lord, help us not to believe lies and let darkness flood in. But let us fight together the fight of faith. Lord, I pray for this church that you would keep us by your own power, that that light beam of the gospel would never become old news to us, but that we would cling to it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.